How are you all doing this morning? Doing okay? Uh, my name is Cy Huffer. I'm one of the ministers here at College Heights. Super excited to have you all here today uh, as we worship our Lord and Savior Jesus and as we read and study from the Bible kind of about him and the life he lived and the life that he invites us to live as we follow him. Um, so if you're new here, welcome. It's great having you here. If you're new to church and this is like your first time at church, maybe ever, maybe in a long time, and you're just kind of trying to get a lay of the land and figure it out, uh, I just want to let you know that we're just a bunch of ordinary people. There's nothing special about us. And so if you feel ordinary, you are going to fit right in. Yeah, we believe this. We believe this to be true about ordinary people. That God has consistently used ordinary people to change the world by loving other ordinary people in extraordinary ways. So I want to keep on kind of repeating this challenge we've been talking about this year, this pray for one idea. Who is the one person that you're praying for? To share the love of Jesus with this week. Who's one person that's close to you but far from God? One person that you see that needs to be shown compassion, who's harassed, who's helpless, who feels like they've been tossed aside. Who's that one person? Maybe you don't know what pray means. What it means to pray for one. Just do this this week. Just ask God, God, who can I love? Show me. Who can I show your love to? Do that. That's as easy. Set your uh, uh, alarm on your phone and go off at one o'clock every day and just pray for it. When that goes off, just, my alarm just says, pray for one. When that goes off every day, who am I praying for? That one person that I'm gonna share the love of Jesus with this week. But that's how we'll change the world. It's gonna happen one person at a time. Change, one person changing the world around them again and again by sharing Jesus' love with others. It will change the world around you and it will change the world beyond you. But that's what Jesus' message was all about. When he said this, his message is all about changing the world. When he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. See, his gospel, his good news, his message is that he is bringing about a new kingdom, a new world order, a new reality that is changing this old broken world into a brand new world. And we can all agree today, can't we, that the world is, it is just messed up, it is broken. If you agree, can you give me an oh yeah? Oh yeah, the question is though, in this messed, messed up, broken, jacked up world, who are we trusting to guide us through it and to guide us out of this messed up world? Because the reality is we turn to all kinds of things all of the time to guide us out of the mess we find ourselves in. We turn to the days, to the them, to those people, to that institution to get us out of the messes around us and beyond us. We turn to religion. We turn to politics. We turn to our understanding of God. We turn to justice and humanism and morality. But this sermon series, Jesus and, is all about how Jesus shows us and that, all, that all these things that we turn to, that we, that we try and tack on things to Jesus, it's Jesus and politics, Jesus and religion, Jesus and justice, that all of those things that we turn on to, that, that they're going to fail, that that's not how it works, that the solution to our problem, no matter what it is, is simply Jesus. That's it. You don't need any other and. You just need him. And in this section of the book of John, a book about Jesus' life, he keeps showing people around him, it's just me. Don't turn to that other stuff. It's all about me. Let me show you what I mean here. This story about Jesus is found in your Bible in John chapter six. You can turn there to your devices. You can look at the words on the screen or you can open up your Bible to John chapter six. It starts off like this in verses one and two. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, 
and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. This is kind of, this is what happens, isn't it? There's a problem in society. Someone comes along and begins addressing that problem and solving it, and then people rally around that particular person. You see, in the first century, the average life expectancy of a man was most likely around 35 to 40 years old. Our life expectancy today is seven in the low 70s. And so that didn't start rising until basically um, the, the modern medicine began taking off in the 19th and 20th centuries. And our life expectancy kept getting longer, longer, longer because we were able, through medicine and science, and able to uh, help people prolong their life. And that really happened just in the last few hundred years. But for the most part, it was all hovered around that 40 years age. So when Jesus comes along, healing sick people who are most likely going to die had massive implications. You see, his healing people would ensure more farmers to work the land. It would ensure more slaves to trade, which was a huge economy at that time. It would ensure more women to bear more children, more children or specifically sons in this culture to leave inheritances to and carry on the family name. It was a very patriarchal society. And so this isn't just a magic trick. These signs of Jesus just healing people and saying, look, he has power. No, this, this kind of healing power can transform the economy and political realities of a society. So he draws a crowd. He draws a crowd, he draws a crowd large enough to fill an arena. 5,000 men were counted that day. If you would have counted the children and the women, most likely 10 to 15,000 people were there listening to Jesus. And so Jesus is speaking at this rally about his platform, about his agenda, that he came to establish what he calls the kingdom of God. See, this is political language he's using. Jesus is promising to establish God's kingdom here on earth that would rule over all of the other kingdoms around them, including the kingdom of Rome, that was oppressing them with high taxes and martial law. And friends, this crowd, they're enamored. He talks so long. And they're so enamored that they forget to eat a meal. That has never happened here before. Right? It's like, how quick time is it? Is Sai almost done? See, Jesus sees the hungry faces. He, sees the, he hears the bellies growling. And he takes five loaves and two fish. And he takes them. And miraculously, he multiplies this handful of food to feed five to 10, 15,000 people. So this man, you're telling me, he heals the sick. The crowd gathers, he keeps people from dying, and then he feeds the masses. This means that this man can marshal an army, he can fight the enemy, when they get injured, he can keep them alive, he can help feed them with next to no food, and he can finally lead thousands to establish the kingdom of God by overthrowing their oppressors, Rome. And man, the masses are ready to vote him in as king. This is what politics are all about. There are needs in our society, and those needs, they are legit. Like, they're for real. According to a recent study, there's more and more school children, minors, that are becoming homeless in our country. Ages 10 through 11 and 16 through 17 are the most likely to become homeless in America. The number of school children who are now homeless has more than doubled since 2004 through 2005 to a total of around 1.5 million kids without a home. Friends, this is a serious problem. The coronavirus outbreak. I wrote this sermon on Wednesday, 
And so the numbers were old this morning. But I wrote on Wednesday that it has killed 427 people and has infected 20,000. Today, it has killed 813 and has infected 34,000. All these kinds of people all around the world causing widespread panic, especially in mainland China and the regions around China. This is a serious problem. And the Democratic primary that began Monday in Iowa showcased all of these candidates addressing all of these different issues. It talked about immigration reform and gun control, healthcare, the economy, and so many other issues. These are all serious and vital problems. And the reality is that where serious problems occur in society, there will always be people trying to solve these problems. And lots of the time, the people trying to solve those problems, they have pure motives. And lots of times they don't have pure motives. But politics... It's the promise of solving the most problems for the most amount of people. And if a candidate can get you to simp- can get the majority to believe that they can solve their problems, they'll usually be the ones that get elected. And that's why the people reacted to Jesus the way they did. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So here's the basic mindset of a Jew in the first century. If we can find the right leader, like we had in our golden years, they will fix all of our problems. Well, does that sound familiar or what? You see, we all look at the past with rose-colored glasses thinking that things were way better back then. And if we can just regain some of that magic, things will be better now. I'm reading this book right now. It's called Leadership in Turbulent Times. And it tells the stories of Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson, four presidents that led during turbulent times. And I'm reading that book. I will tell you this. There's this rhetoric and this language in our society that says, man, things are worse than ever. Things are more divisive than ever. No, they aren't. Read, read about Abraham Lincoln. Read about these stories of our presidents. There was a thing called a civil war. Like we literally killed each other in our country. That was pretty divisive. This culture is actually very par for the course for us as Americans. All throughout these, these ages, we fought against each other because we believed that we saw the right way to solve the problem. The other people were the enemy. Again, each of these four stories, again, 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 that's the, that's the, that's the situation, that's the story. And yet we have the privilege to look back and see that all of those different leaders led outside, led through those turbulent times. And so we look back and we say, yeah, those were great times. But in reality at the time, those people were hated by others in our country. See, that's why they ask this question. They make, I mean, that's why they make this statement. Surely this, Jesus, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. This was a reference to the past. They're looking through rose-colored glasses. This is a reference to their founding father, Moses. Moses was the gold standard of what a leader is supposed to do for their people. Moses stood up against oppression when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Moses went into Pharaoh and demanded him to let his people go. And he led them out of slavery in Egypt. He led them 40 years through the wilderness. He miraculously fed them with bread from heaven. Sound familiar? He gave them the law, took them to the promised land, right on the edge of the promised land. And right before they entered the promised land, he got up and he preached a sermon to them and he informed them of something that God had said to Moses. God had said to Moses about the people. Check out this, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. It says this, Moses, uh, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among the fellow Israelites. 
and I'll put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. And here's Jesus talking about the kingdom, healing the sick, feeding the masses miraculously with bread and preaching like no one else. And the Jews are wondering, is this the leader? Is this the leader that will overthrow the Romans and save us the way Jesus did? So look what happens next, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. See, Jesus sees what they're thinking because he knows the political climate of the time. You see, in the first century, there were political parties. There are these different factions of, 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 of the society where Jews thought that this was the right way for God to save them, and this is the right way to establish the, the golden reign of the Jews again. And there were actually four political parties. There were the Pharisees, and they believed this, God saves those who are worth saving. That if you can just become morally upright, follow the law, be righteous, God will save you. Then there are the Sadducees that said, God saves those who are connected to the right people. They believed that Rome had God's favor. That's why they had conquered the known world and God was pleased with Rome. And so they said, hey, the Romans, God's on their side. So let's saddle up to the Romans, be connected to them and God will save us too. And then you have here the zealots that say, God didn't favor the Romans. The Romans are our enemy. We have to overthrow them. They believe God saves those who saves themselves, save themselves. So they're taking up arms. They're saying, let's go, let's overthrow the enemy. And when we step out and we rebel, God's gonna join our side and he's gonna step in. He's gonna destroy our enemy, but he's waiting for us to take the first step. And then there's the Essenes in the first century. And they were the ones that believed the whole system was corrupt, that established religion, the temple, all of it. They didn't trust how things were going. They didn't trust the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, any of the other ones. They didn't think the weapons were the answer. And so they just withdrew. They believed God saves those who are totally separate from this corrupt system. They look at, you know, it's, it's like looking at the institution of church or, or evangelicalism or Protestants and Catholicism and all that stuff and say, no, it's all corrupt. We're just gonna just be me and Jesus over here separate from everything else. Same, similar idea. And so these, these four political parties were existing in the first century and all of them, as they have this new rabbi that Jesus comes on talking about this political statement about the kingdom of God, all of them are wondering, is, is he a Pharisee? Is he part of us or is he part of them? Or is he one of those people? Like, where does he lean and where does he stand on the political spectrum? And the thing is, they can't nail him down. They can't figure it out. He, can't, he doesn't fit perfectly into one camp or the other. He's something totally and completely different. Tim Keller at a conference in Chicago gave a talk about the early church in the first three centuries, how this, this barely existing group of Jews that were poor living in nowhere land, their leader crucified, how they grew to become the dominant religion of Rome in 315 years. Like, how did that happen? And he talked about four markers that distinguish Christians in the early church from all of the other cultures around them. It's fascinating. Here they are. I'm going to give them up on the screen there. The first is this, multi-ethnic church. The original church, the early church, was multi-ethnic. It wasn't one group. It wasn't one ethnicity or the other. They were actually called the third race, Christians were, because it wasn't us. It wasn't them. It was Babylonians and Scythians and slaves and, and free. And it was people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation all worshiping Jesus together. And they're like, this is nothing we've ever seen before. All the different ethnicities together united around Jesus. They had their care for the poor. We actually have early documents between these two uh, leaders, uh, like political figures in Rome. And they're saying, why can't we get rid of these Christians? The other one's basically saying, well, not only do they care for their own poor, but they care for everybody's poor. 
Like if you're poor, they're gonna come and they're gonna help you. They're gonna provide you resources. They're gonna circle around you and make sure invite you into their homes, the hospitality, and they're gonna care for you. And then here's number three, a radical love for enemies. Man, Christians, didn't matter if you're persecuting me, if you're making fun of me, if you disagreed with what I thought. I loved you anyway. I showed you compassion and kindness and I was gentle with you and I had humility and I was patient with you and I pursued you and I loved you and they, they had a non-retaliatory react, uh, uh, response to people who were persecuting them. Number four is this, they were pro-human dignity. They believed that every life, every person was made in the image of God, had dignity and value and worth. So much so that in the first century, the uh, people would have a baby and if the baby a lot of times was a girl, it was a very patriarchal society, they would expose the child on the street and just leave it. It's called infanticide. They would just leave it to be destroyed by the, the elements, the weather, animals. And they would be practicing abortion in the first century. And Christians not only spoke out against abortion, but they also went to the streets and they picked up babies that had been abandoned and exposed and raised them as their own. And it wasn't just babies, it was every life, every skin color, every gender, every political, uh, every, every economic level, every person has dignity. And then there's number five, a sexual counterculture. Well, Christians, I mean, in the first century, men would have lots of partners. They'd have their wife, but they'd also have um, escorts and all kinds of things and the prostitutes in the temple. But the Christians said, no, 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 no. Sex is only for a man, one man and one woman in a covenant of marriage. They would preach that. They would teach that. They would live that out. They were faithful to each other. They also would hold up um, chastity. That, you know, until you're married, sex is prohibited until you're married. It's, sex is only for that covenant. They would hold up abstinence. They'd hold up celibacy, committing yourself as a single person for the sake of the kingdom. And so Tim Keller talked about these five markers that distinguished Christianity in the early church. And he said, what's fascinating, and he said this in Chicago at this conference, he said that in our society today, the first two of these five leans towards the left politically. The last two leans towards the right politically. And number three, no one's talking about. See, everyone's trying to Get Jesus to be on their side. And yet Jesus is something totally separate. It's totally different. This is what Jesus does. Instead of becoming king by force, he withdraws. He shares life with 12 nobodies. He models for them what it means to love your enemies by getting up on a cross, dying for all of humanity's sins. And while the Romans are killing him, crying out to his father, in heaven, Lord, forgive them for they, those that are killing me, they don't know what they're doing. So forgive them, God. And the world looks at that today. The thing that no one's talking about, that non-retaliatory love, that self-sacrificial love, they say, what is that? It reminds me of my new favorite series, The Mandalorian, which is on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if anyone else has watched that. But there's just so many times in The Mandalorian, this character that is so different from everybody else around him, and they ask him, why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? And he always responds the same way. He says, this is the way. This is the way. And that's what Jesus does. He says, no, 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 don't follow that political party, that or that. No, no, follow me. Come follow me. Come be changed me. Come get on mission with me. This is the way to the fullest life, the created life. It's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. Anything else 
any other political party, any other strategy to truly meet the needs of the masses in every society, no matter what the issue is, it falls short of God's plan to bring about his kingdom, the new creation, heaven on earth instead of hell on earth. It's only through Jesus and his gospel of self-sacrificial love, loving your enemies, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's only, it's the only way to truly transform people's hearts from the inside out. It's why Jesus says to the crowd a little bit later in another one of his sermons in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. See, every earthly kingdom and every political party inside that earthly kingdom is food that will spoil. None of it will last forever. The Babylonians thought they would last forever and then their kingdom crumbled. The Greeks thought their empire of the known world was the greatest ever and it was destroyed. The Romans and their republic and road system and language spread into the entire globe, yet Latin today is a dead language and no one's been called a Roman for centuries. Constantinople was sacked. The Carolingian dynasty no longer exists. The British empire fell to farmers and militias. Napoleon was exiled. Hitler committed suicide. And this United States of America will not endure the test of time. Hear me, only the kingdom of God will. So when you scroll the news on your app or you watch the headlines following each election, remember this one vital truth. The question isn't, who do I vote in? The question is, who do I trust in? But that's how Jesus answers the confused and bewildered crowd who has voted in one earthly ruler and kingdom after another. He says this in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. We all have major needs in our lives. That's why politics exist. But in the face of those needs, Jesus looks at the masses. He looks at individuals. He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, we don't need Jesus and politics to save us from our messes. We just need Jesus. Period. The question is, will you believe in Jesus? Now, I don't want to get caught up on this word belief because a lot of times we just equate belief with this idea that we hold in our head, this truth statement that we agree to. Yeah, I believe that to be true. And yet the word belief is so much more rich than just an idea that you hold in your head. It's this idea of allegiance. It's this idea of trust. It's like this idea of me saying, I believe in this chair. Okay. Okay. But do I trust the chair? Do I trust that this chair is sturdy, is made well? Do I trust that this chair will hold my weight? Do I trust that this chair will be able to give me rest from standing on my feet? Do I trust? I've never sat in this chair before. This is a different chair than even first service. Okay, so, uh, oh, we sat in the first service. No, I didn't. Okay, it's a second chair. I thought of that. So how, how do I know that this chair is going to hold me? How do I trust it? Well, I got to, like, examine it. Like, I can spend time with it. I'll look at it. Like, it, it looks sturdy. I know nothing about chair manufacturing, but it looks pretty good to me, right? I can look at it and look in the, okay, it feels sturdy. It's not falling apart. There's some bolts. Oh, stink. My physical therapist attends church here and I hurt my shoulder. I'm not supposed to lift any more than a coffee mug. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble this week at physical therapy. Okay, back to the sermon. Uh, 
It has nice bolts and everything. How do I do this with one arm? Gosh, come on. Okay. It looks sturdy, right? Okay, maybe I can like put some weight on it. Getting to know the chair. That feels good. Okay. Maybe on one leg. Okay. You ready for this? Ta-da! Right? Yeah, pretty good, huh? Look at this. Okay. The same is true with Jesus. Like, do you trust Jesus? And the answer today might be no. That's okay. That's why his invitation to you is, come follow me. He's saying, come spend time with me. Come put a little bit of your weight on me. Feel what it's like. Come sit in the chair finally for the very first time and come see what is it like to rely on me more than anything else. You see, the reality is we so often, we live and we're absorbed with this political culture and climate that we've lived in for so long and it's because we all we know. And when there's a problem in society, we have so often turned to, well, who are we voting for? Well, what's the government gonna do? What's they or them or the institution or whatever? It's just what we're used to. And so telling you to say, it's not what you vote in, but it's who you trust in is a really, really tough challenge for some of you. Because you don't trust Jesus. You've never spent the time getting to know him. You've never spent the time learning about who he is and his character and his life and what he calls you to. There's really only one, one way to do that. And it's, there's, I'm sorry, there's lots of ways to learn to trust Jesus, to get to know him. I'm a, my, my challenge to you this week is just one of them, okay? This week, my challenge to you is this. Spend four days this next week reading about Jesus from the book of John. We're studying John. So just choose four days to spend reading about Jesus from the book. Okay, it's just one of the ways to learn to trust Jesus. It's not the only way, but it's one of the ways. But it's the way I'm challenging you with this week. Studies have shown, and there's a Facebook video that went around uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was like, man, that's fantastic. And so I just want to share it with you, like, there are studies show that if you read your Bible one day a week, it really it has a minimal impact on your life. Two days a week, maybe a little bit more, but not much. Three days, the same thing. But if you read your Bible four days a week, there's massive impl implications for your life. Look at some of these stats. This is what, on average, this is what happens when people read their, their Bible four days a week. Loneliness drops 30%. Bitterness drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Look at number seven. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. So this is my challenge to you. Four days this next week. Spend four days this next week reading from the book of John. This is sitting, I'm calling it the sit in the chair challenge. Okay? Sit in the chair with Jesus. Four days this week. Who's your accountability partner who's asking you every day, texting you, hey, did you sit in the chair today? Don't leave today without getting that. Who are you gonna do this with? Who's gonna hold you accountable? Who's gonna challenge you? Ask you those questions. Post it on your social media. Post hashtag sit in the chair. Okay, and say day one, hashtag set in the chair today. And, and, and read it together and, and really challenge one another to do this. We wanna obey in the same direction. Imagine what it would look like for us as a church if we all were reading our Bible four days a week and all it is, it's not legalistic, it's just us getting to know Jesus. It's sitting in the chair with Jesus so that we trust him. Remember, the question isn't who do I vote in? The question is who do I trust him? And the only way we're going to keep the voices of politics at bay in their rightful place is by spending more time sitting in the chair with Jesus than sitting in the chair with CNN and Fox and BBC. 
I was on Twitter uh, last week, and I saw a clip from an Andy Stanley sermon, and it was really good. It was about uh, Jesus and politics. And I was like, I'm preaching on that. Um, and he said, if you force me to, he goes, today, I could write a paper showing how Jesus, uh, how, how the Republican platform aligns with Jesus and, his, and, his, and the kingdom. He goes, if, if you ask me today, I could write a paper that shows how the Democratic platform aligns with Jesus and the kingdom. And he said, but here's the reality that Jesus, uh, he, that I learned from my professor, Dr. Tony Evans at Dallas Theological Seminary, is that Tony Evans said this, Jesus didn't come just to take sides. Jesus came to take over. Friends, Jesus didn't come to take sides with the political debates going on of the time. Jesus came to take over, like to take over everything. You see, Jesus' issue with the reaction of the crowd is not that they think he's king. No, Jesus definitely sees himself as the true king over the only eternal kingdom. When he ascends on high, in Matthew 28, he says these words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The most important word in that sentence is the first one. It's the word all. And it encompasses all. All authority. Like there's no authority left for anybody else. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus sees himself as king. He was able to say this because he's the only human being ever to predict his death and resurrection and pull it off. He's the only entity that's both fully God and fully man that created the world, sustains it moment by moment and sits on the throne in heaven and rules over his kingdom. He sees himself as king 100%. But that isn't why he pushed back on this mob trying to make him king. No, it's what they were trying to, is that they were trying to make him king by force. You see, Jesus' kingdom is slowly taking over the world, but it isn't by force. There's been moments, sure, in history when Jesus' followers have tried to take over and advance his kingdom by force, but has always had the alternate effect. No, Jesus' kingdom grows when his followers pursue hospitality with those that look different than them, when they care for the poor, when they adopt the abandoned, when they push back against the dominant sexual ethic of society, and most of all, hear this, when they love their enemies. Our king washes the feet of his citizens. He comes to show compassion to the harassed and helpless, the downtrodden, the cast aside, the tossed aside, the sheep without a shepherd, to love the hard to love, to love the forgotten, to love the sinners, to love the broken, to love the oppressors, and to love the outcast. Our king does not establish his kingdom by killing the oppressive ones, but by dying for everyone. Friends, this is Jesus, and he loves you. Like he loves you desperately. He loves you recklessly. He loves you. He loves me. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. And he wants to guide you out of the messes you find yourself in. One of the most beautiful moments, I think, in Jesus' life was at the tomb of Lazarus. He knows he's going to resurrect him. He stands there with Mary and Martha and it says those two beautiful words that Jesus wept. He loves you. Like he loves the pain. He loves you in the midst of your pain. He sees you in your loneliness. He knows the intricacies of your depression. 
to guide you out of the mess you find yourself in, not by food that spoils, but by food that endures for forever. So you got to answer the question, do you trust him? The question isn't who do I vote in? The question is who do I trust in? Do you trust Jesus today? There's really three ways um, you can respond to this message today. These are three ways right now in this moment you can sit in the chair with Jesus. It's like three ways to do this. First is this, there's communion stations around the room. And during the next couple of songs that we play, whenever you feel led, don't feel rushed. Come take communion. It's the good news of Jesus in a meal. It's the body of Jesus broken and beaten and bruised for you. It's his blood shed for you on the cross. Come eat the bread, drink the cup, and sit in the chair with Jesus and his love for you and know that this is a God that you can trust. It's a king who dies for his citizens. If you need prayer, I'm gonna go ahead and ask our prayer team to get up and go around the room. Staff, go sit up and go around the room. Elders, you can come up front here and go around the room. Volunteer, uh, prayer, uh, do the same thing. Right now, go ahead and everyone start moving. There's people at chairs up here. You can come sit and pray with people. But during this next couple songs, come pray. Come sit in the chair with Jesus. And lastly, if you don't know Jesus, like this is the first time you've ever even seen the chair, and you wanna take a step, I'll be right over here under our lightning bolt, which is our symbol for prayer. I'd love to talk to you about who Jesus is. Let's take this moment. Let's not, please God, may the hope of, of us getting out of our mess not be who we vote for on November. But who are you trusting in today? So let's come sit in the chair with Jesus.